You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. Hello, Narcotica listeners. This is Christopher Moraff reporting to you from the lower depths of South Philadelphia. With the midterm elections just days away, we're going to dedicate our program today to one of America's newest voter constituencies, the millions of chronically ill people in our nation who, over the past decade, have found themselves in the bullseye of bureaucrats in state and federal government as policymakers struggle to address the overdose crisis. As always, with me today are my co-hosts, Zachary Siegel, Yo. And of course, Troy Farah. Good to be here. We've all written extensively on this issue. Um, In preparing for this show, I traced back to the first byline I could find of my own detailing the looming shitstorm ahead for chronic pain patients back in 2012. At that time, the DEA had just rescheduled hydrocodone from Schedule three to schedule two, which in hindsight seems kind of quaint. Since then, we've had the CDC come out with guidelines that have been used as a cudgel by some doctors to cut back dosages drastically for patients existing on pain management and to refuse thousands and thousands more entry into a treatment system that, while it may be flawed, also provides the only source of relief for millions and millions of Americans suffering from a host of chronic conditions. To speak to these issues, including what the pain community is doing to fight back, we have a special guest on Narcotica today, Lauren DeLuca. She is the founder of the Chronic Illness Advocacy and Awareness Group, which was launched a year ago on November 6th. And um, she's been advocating for people with illnesses that have been adversely affected by the evolving policies on uh, pain medication and other medications. In September, DeLuca was invited to speak before the Narcotics Control Board of the United Nations in Vienna, where she laid out the situation facing pain patients in the U.S. The tragedy of people using illicit opioids and dying from opioids overdoses should not impact palliative care or the treatment of pain for people with incurable diseases, chronic illnesses, and incurable conditions. Our lives matter just as much as theirs, yet we're being punished by bureaucrats, regulators, and law enforcement agencies of which none hold any medical degrees nor training. Sadly, what I went through and what many others are going through in the United States is now the new normal for anyone suffering from chronic illness, disease, or incurable conditions. Welcome. We're glad to have you with us. Thank you for having me. So I guess uh, to get started, why don't you just give us a little background about yourself and um, how you got involved in this type of work. What, what, what type of work did you do historically and, and when did you transition to become an advocate? Um, I was a commercial insurance agent for um, about 
10, 15 years um, for commercial liability insurance. And I actually, most recently before I had left my position, I was a commercial risk manager and insurance agent for um, large organizations involved in clinical trials and research just so happened to be. And last year I had a medical emergency and I went to the emergency room for a pancreatic attack. And I was basically getting doctor rounds for almost a year. Um, I was really fighting for my life in that I came to a grim realization that I wasn't going to get the help that I needed. I was calling reg elected officials, the attorney general, the governor, everybody telling them I wasn't getting helped and I was in an emergency room situation and no one was helping me. And I just kept getting a bunch of, oh, I'm sorry's. And I came to a realization when I went to the internet that this was a global problem. It was happening to everybody. And I really asked myself why. You were suffering from untreated pain. Yeah. I, um, I was having a medical emergency, a pancreatic attack. Essentially, when the pancreas acts up, you start digesting your own, your own organ alive. So it, I compare it to the movie Aliens often because it does feel like something is in there trying to burst out. And it is the most debilitating thing I've ever felt. And at what point did you connect this to policy rather than just bad doctors or just a bad hospital or, or just bad care? Well, what tipped me off the most was really the support groups online. I went into, you know, I got my diagnosis. I knew I was dealing with pain for a while, and I now knew it was a permanent thing. So I just kind of went to the support groups naturally. And I saw within the support group, people were all talking about losing their medicine. And, you know, knowing that the pancreatitis fund themselves support use of opiates because there is no cure and it is so aggressive, the failure to treat could actually kill the person. Um, they could die of shock. They could have a heart attack. Their organ itself could actually rupture. So it's very dangerous not to treat someone when they go into attack because it could turn fatal pretty quick. And all these people in the groups were just basically crying out for help, and no one was there to answer them. So at one point, I essentially decided to be that answer. To sort of zoom out a, a little bit here, like we have all reported tons of stories about the opioid overdose crisis and your story and the story of these patients are an afterthought. The people who need opioids, whose conditions and different diseases are totally debilitating, like you said, people who need these painkillers now can't get them. And I think that's sort of the meat and substance of, of where we are at now, which is typical U.S. drug policy is to interdict, enforce, constrict the supply of whatever drug is the drug du jour, and patients like you are on the other end getting squeezed out. So yeah. that, that's like what I see where we are right now. Yeah, and really when I look at this and – in the past year, I've gotten a serious wake-up call on how healthcare works, how the government works, how everything works, really. And it's just a short-sighted fix, as always. We're quickly saying, you know, if we just cut off the medicines, they'll stop addiction, which we all basically know is not true. So it's it's a bit of, you know, I'm sure you're in the same place. It's a bit maddening to hear this whole statement that it's from the pills because, you know, opioids were not being provided in the 70s and 80s, and people still had heroin and cocaine and drug problems. Eliminating the substance itself isn't going to do anything for anyone. And I think we all know that, but, you know, everybody's kind of showboating that they're fighting the opioid crisis. And 
But in the meantime, they won't listen to the people who need it because there's this greater good. But the numbers are pretty clear at this point. This greater good, you know, tactic is not working. And for some reason, they're not slowing down. They're increasing the speed. They're intensifying it. Despite that, you know, I was able to figure all this out from my apartment. Imagine what's really out there. And and I'd like to point out just that this just this morning, I got another uh, message over Twitter from a pain patient asking me uh, where he can get heroin uh, and how he can prepare for that. Um, and I told him what I tell probably the half dozen or so people that have asked me that. Go to your local harm reduction agency before you do anything and talk to somebody. Yeah. Um, but but this is happening. Yeah. And. What they're not even realizing they're creating is, you know, if I was, if somebody is suffering with addiction at this point, they are creating a system that if you have addiction, you're going to be barred from treatment. Well, if you have addiction, what would make you want to come out now? You're not, we worked so hard to destigmatize addiction so that it could be recognized as a disease and people could get assistance. But now we've worked so hard that we're going to go too far where people are going to start resenting it. One of the uh, major uh, fallouts of the CDC's policy, which, by the way, they recently admitted, uh, four CDC researchers quietly admitted in an op-ed that they overestimated the amount of uh, prescription overdose deaths by about 50% because they're just, their whole, they just weren't looking at the data well. Um, so one of the fallouts of this policy that wasn't even, it was in response to something that they didn't even have the right data on. Um, it has resulted in a lot of this anger towards people who have substance use disorder, people who are addicted. Uh, now are <laughs> they're getting a whole lot of blame for the fact that the, the these prescription guidelines have screwed so many people over. Yeah, yeah, and and in the end, it's not going to help people with addiction. It's not going to help people with disease. We're just creating a secondary crisis. We have an untreated pain crisis now. And, you know, pain patients are being thrown out of their doctor's office. They're being patronized, verbally and emotionally abused while they're in a physical duress. So, you know, they're looking around saying, you know, this shouldn't happen to me. And unfortunately, they misplace the anger towards somebody who suffers from substance use disorder. And, you know, we recognize that substance use disorder is also a serious condition and it needs help, but it needs very different help. You know, they need mental health treatment. They need treatment to resources, you know, homelessness and things like that feed into um, substance use disorder. They get caught up into, you know, a whole lifestyle and you have to be able to give them the resources. But like for someone myself who, you know, I'm not waking up to use and, and have a habitual habit. I just want to go take a shower. And unfortunately, because of the illness I have, I have to get some pain management or I wouldn't be able to move. And until we separate these populations, we're going to continue to fail both of them. Right. And I think like the biggest confounding factor here is the difference between physical dependence and true addiction. And in the pain patient population, like addiction where someone is using way beyond their prescribed dose they're shopping around different doctors they're they might have a condition that sparked on this kind of addiction and this behavior but this this happens in a with pretty low frequency in the chronic pain population and i I think you, you know i would definitely want to hear you elaborate on that a little bit but also just to 
say like right here and right now that the addiction is defined as you know compulsive drug use despite negative consequences and physical dependence happens naturally in anyone who takes opioids for some amount of time and just because someone experiences withdrawal doesn't mean that they were addicted yep and and that's actually it was really nice when i um when i joined the united nations that was the first place where i actually heard that recognized publicly and it was really eye-opening because we've met with so many legislators both at the state level and at the um at the national level and nobody will acknowledge that key difference which we all basically know i mean you can get addicted to coffee you can develop a dependence to coffee you get headaches and things like that doesn't mean that you're you know a coffee addict nobody is picking up starbucks for a lot you know they're not like banning cheeseburgers because you might get fat i mean you can't do like it's almost like that movie with Tom Cruise, the pre-crime. You know, we're trying to project what someone's going to do based on patterns of information, which I get it. You know, statistics are used to make guesses and, and try to make some sort of assumption about behaviors, but you cannot make that be your answer and your only sole guiding force. Um, and I would go so far as to say that 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 there is that we even make this false distinction between addiction and non-addiction. You know, there there may be people that maybe take a couple extra one day, you know, because it, they, you know, but that's not the same as taking your entire pill bottle one in the first week and having to go to the street, you know, like it, it's a continuum. So, yeah, we don't know the person or what they're doing. We can't just pass judgment. Self-medication is not abuse sometimes. Um, could you talk a little bit about, you mentioned the UN, um, but we don't really have the context around that. So how did that come together? Um, and, w- and what was your presentation about and how was the response? Um, I was invited to the United Nations um, by a corporate um, partner that I had met um, in June, actually. I joined the Affordable Medicine Now conference where I was actually scheduled to be a speaker. And um, I was on their website for several months. And then all of a sudden I got an email about a week before the event stating that they had essentially changed their plans and I no longer could be speaker. And you know, I was kind of shocked because it was a corporate partner that, you know, was really excited to have me on stage and to tell this story. I told them that they were going to be putting together the first balanced panel that discussed both the opioid problem and the benefits of opioids and that the untreated pain crisis. And then suddenly I was taken off the stage unknowingly but um long story short is i eventually i met this woman at that event and she's from the international association for hospice and palliative care and she does this internationally all around the world for decades she has been fighting for access to pain medication in countries where it is not available there's about 80 percent of the world does not have any access to opiate pain medication and the united nations and in 2016 um, the unigas general assembly had put out plans for kind of the thin line between access to medicines and control for diversion and how to get to walk that thin line to make sure that you're not allowing drugs to run amok, but you're also not restricting it to a level that you're hurting your citizens. And I met that woman at the event and told her what we were doing, and she was shocked when I told her that what was happening in America because they didn't know. And she had been, she fights for this all around the globe. And being, America being a leader with humanitarian issues, or 
we have been up until recent years, she recognized that this could potentially leak out into other countries as well. You know, we are often taking up the charge on what other countries should do. And, you know, I told her that our mission was to really expose this to the public and get the conversation started that opioids are needed for pain medication and you cannot just arbitrarily yank them from the sickest and weakest population in this country for other people's behavior. Yeah. And so she had invited me out to essentially help me fulfill that that desire to tell the world and make sure that this is now public. And that did go actually out to seven countries um, live, which included you know, the United States, Russia, China, France, United Arabic Kingdom, Austria, where I was, and Germany. So thankfully we put that, we have now put it on the map because while I was there, it really opened my eyes because America stood alone in that room every other country spoke very clearly about the difference between addiction and dependency there was no confusion there was no oh it's the same like we see in the media in the united states they try to conflate the same they try to give the demonization of the drug and that's actually something that i've been recently stating is we need to not demonize the substance because we're taking it too far and the united nations was talking a lot about narrative and that the way we discuss things is is vitally important to the receptiveness of the community. So the United States, the elected officials, the media, they very well know what they're doing. Speaking of narrative, we should talk about news that is sort of breaking today and like, you know, quote news. I'm not sure how big a news it is, but in Roseanne, in, in the, the spinoff show, The Connors, uh, Roseanne's character is, is, is killed off by an opioid uh, overdose. And, and, and basically, the narrative is that Roseanne was like doctor shopping, or she had some prescription and, but the, uh, the, the, the meat and substance, and then more important, the narrative and the message that's portrayed is, you know, some doctor got Roseanne hooked, and she and she's been sort of been feeding this habit with with prescription painkillers and again like this does happen and it it's possible that that people experience exactly what Roseanne experienced but like it is the exception not the rule and we keep hearing stories about this exceptional case where someone is addicted by just mere exposure to the drug and and also there's there's all the politics around like Roseanne isn't likable. Nobody likes this woman. That's why she got killed off the fucking show. <laughs> Let, let's turn her into a junkie and, 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 and kill her. Problem yeah. solved. I mean, when I caught wind of that, I was I was very, very upset because just like you, I I have not watched the show and after I found out about the um storyline, I definitely won't watch the show. Um, you know, you know, the president always says, you know, fake news. You know, I want to say old news. We have heard that story over and over and over again. They've, they're basically drilling it into our subconscious at this point that, you know, opioids are bad and that's how it happens. And, you know, that 80, the DEA and law enforcement are offering, quoting out that 80% of people get addicted to heroin as a result of exactly what you said with Roseanne. 
the doctor shopping and then they get cut off and they turn to heroin and they, you know, I actually have some people telling me and they firmly believe that if you take opioids for four days, that you are fully addicted, that you'll never be able to get off. And it's dangerous to be teaching things that are just not true. You know, we're creating a just, well, we're bringing in inclusion for substance use disorder. We are creating discrimination for thousands of chronic illnesses and diseases that, you know, we cannot help that at all. And, you know, they say addiction is also a disease. And that means they need their treatment that's specialized to their disease, just like I do. To, to throw a little media criticism in there, you know, oftentimes reporters will go on the street and talk to heroin users who will say, you know, I started on pain medication or whatever, and then sort of, you know, correlate that to, well, pain medication causes, but just, just because a heroin user became a heroin user because they started with pain medication, it doesn't mean that everybody that's on pain medication becomes a heroin user. Those are two different things. And, and you know, to say that person, who said that person wasn't abusing alcohol and cocaine before they got their hands on an opioid? They were still abusing drugs. They just happened to get something that they liked. You take away opioids, they're still going to, someone with a drug-seeking problem is still going to find a new substance to abuse. Right. So even if we were able to magically make opioids disappear, drug addiction isn't going to just immediately be eradicated. And what's really disturbing is um, uh, Dr. Andrew Kalagny recently has been um, on two shows, which was a little disturbing because it means it's scripted, it's not an off-the-cuff statement, has been perpetrating that we just need to let this generation die off. And they were talking about upstream prevention. So they are talking about letting us die publicly. They've introduced right to die in 30 states. Speaking of Andrew... Astronomical. uh, Speaking of Andrew Kolodny, has... He or anybody else that were kind of uh, encouraging these CDC guidelines taken any responsibility for any of the fallout that's happened? No, absolutely not. I actually joined the um, 2018 opioid conference that is put on by the federal government in April. And I really went because as an insurance agent, one of the first things I learned on the job is if you don't want to get sued, say it, don't write it. So I read all the laws and nothing looked bad in writing. So... It's more than just the guidelines themselves. We've even taken the guidelines further than they were supposed to go. So, you know, behind a closed door, everyone will say they agree with us. They want it to stop. It's horrible. It's horrible. You walk out that door. It's like you're not even there. The conversation's over. It never happened. There's only been one legislator that has allowed me to publicly say he supports us. Hmm. So you're, 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 you're like this gadfly showing up at all these, you know, up <laughs> conferences and pressing like CDC uh, researchers like in, in person and 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 so what you're saying is that the the public message is different from the private one they'll, they'll say to the public like hey we've reduced uh, opioid prescriptions with all these new laws and policies and it's it's doing great work and this is vitally important to quote, battling the opioid crisis. But in private, it sounds like a lot of them are actually very concerned about the population you're advocating for, which is patients like, say, in Oregon, who might Mm -hmm. one day be forced to taper. 
Yeah. I mean, there's, I'm starting and the more I'm doing this, the more I'm starting to put together who's kind of helping us and who's helping make sure this happens to us. And there's some definite, there's definitely some legislators that are fully eyes wide open doing this. Um, they know that the human impact, they know the financial impact of suicides. And I think actually, I mean, I'm not positive, but I do think a lot of our efforts is the reason the suicide study was added to HR 6. Because in our meetings, we had emphasized repeatedly that the removal of opiate medication from individuals with chronic disease and conditions is causing people to kill themselves. And if you really pause, you have to really think about that. Like a person who wants to live was brought to their knees to, and actually went through with it. And it takes a lot to kill yourself. HR 6 is one of the bills in that package of legislation that was recently passed unanimously. And there was a rider to one of the bills that said, we yes. must study the uh, rate of uh, pain patient suicide. That's what you're talking about. Yeah, yes. and, and, and actually, Massachusetts alone, we jumped 35.3% in suicide in 2016. It is unbelievably clear there is an issue. Some states are over 40% immediate jump. There is correlation right there. And, you know, I would stand, yes, right to die, but not if you're withholding their meds. Like, that's not a choice anymore. You're forcing it. Like, so, you know, it makes a very dangerous ethical decision that, you know, if somebody chooses that they want to pass, they should have made that choice by by exhausting all mechanisms, having all medications, and then making that choice. By taking away everybody's ability to live, of course, they would say, fine, kill me, finish the job. Mm-hmm. And it's really disturbing to see the representatives move forward with that. And actually, one quick statement, I just think there was one legislator that voted no on H.R. 6, who I happen to call today, and that is uh, Representative Mike Lee from Utah. And he voted no. And I did call to find out to see if he voted no, thinking, you know, it wasn't strict enough. <laughs> but um, he actually voted no because he had concerns. And um, we are now reached out to his office and hopefully going to start talking with him because they had a concern with the accountability for the billions of dollars that are being released, and it's not being accounted for not being tracked. I mean, this could potentially be one of the biggest money money laundering schemes ever. Explain that. Well, we have billions of dollars coming from the federal government and trickling down to each state. Each governor then can allocate that monies to whoever they see fit to create new addiction centers and things of that nature. Well, if nobody's really checking, balancing where that money's going, it's just being shifted wherever they feel like. Like even the panels that they're putting together in Massachusetts, they use the loose terms of, you know, it'll be an appointed team of 28 people chosen by the governor. Well, if the governor chose them, they're likely going to do what he wanted. This is the like state targeted response grants, like SAMHSA money. Yes. Like 21st century here. So, so it's, it's really, they have the ability. That, that that sounds incredibly scandalous. Like, I, I I haven't looked at any of that, so it's... Every time you go to the doctor, you have to sign your HIPAA release. We don't even get to read those. So we've technically probably signed off and allowed our records to be sold unwillingly. And they're being sold off in mapping data mining to try to do predictive modeling. And, the re- and that's why I think I have such a unique insight into this is because I'm an insurance agent when it comes down to it. So I look at statistics, graphs, predictive modeling. I... I understand that process. And they're applying insurance modeling to the American public. But, you know, math and science are two different subjects for a reason. (laughs) They're not the same. They don't work the same. 
uh, can you explain to us what was wrong specifically with the CDC's prescription guidelines? Why that 90 milligrams per 24 hours was just, you know, not scientific or backed up by really anything? What was wrong with that equation? Well, for one, nobody knows where 90 milligrams came from. So there's really no scientific study or clinical research or anything that even ties to that. It is literally an arbitrarily picked number by, you know, the powers that be that came together and made the CDC guidelines, which, you know, when I meet with legislators, often most of them don't even know what the guidelines are. So we're talking to legislators who are passing laws based on something they don't even know anything about. So there's, when I meet with legislators, I always double back right to the guidelines themselves and how they came together, because you can't talk about how to fix something unless you know how we got here. And the 90 milligrams was picked arbitrarily by a group of individuals that came together. And, you know, most notably, there are individuals with deep ties into the addiction interest community and into farms, um, you know, addiction pharma and, and clinics. And unfortunately, they set this number up as a maximum dose. But if you look at it right at the top, someone hears 90 milligrams and that sounds good because that sounds like a lot, but you're not taking 90 milligrams per dose. You're taking 90 milligrams over the whole day. So that could just be three 30 milligram pills. That's eight hours. You know, when you break it down, it doesn't come up to be that much. You know, if you're not using the medication, you don't need it. It's very easy to, to make like hyperbole about the whole situation. You know, it's in the media constantly in that they, they switch it saying, you know, there were 2 million opioid pills. We'll break that down per capita. It's really not that much. It's 600 patients. And it's all flipping the numbers and using numbers to create confusion. And it's really, really easy to do if you do not know the game. And that's all this really breaks down to. It's a game of, of statistics and numbers and phrasing data. And the 90 milligrams is highly dangerous because of different metabolisms, different diseases. You know, I might not metabolize, I could hyper metabolize the medication. A lot of individuals, uh, especially individuals with digestive problems, have problems with absorption. So I could take twice the amount of a normal person and get half the dose because my body's not absorbing it. You know, someone with the exact same condition as me might have different pain levels. You know, just pain itself is subjective. Let's shift to November. Uh, it's coming up on the one-year anniversary of your group, the Chronic Illness Advocacy, uh, coming into coming in together. Uh, what is your plan for the election season? Um, we have been really building the grassroots momentum of the community for the past year. Um, you know, there's a lot of education that needs to go out even to our own community members because of the misinformation that is intentionally sent. And what we have that is unique about our group is we really are a a neutral political group. We have people from the far right and the far left, and they're all getting along. <laughs> Amazingly, as long as we stay on one topic. <laughs> um, but this is an issue that the entire population stands on the same side, you know, where we're essentially educating the community on how the, uh, the democratic process works. And we have actual formal membership that's going to be coming out where we're going to be able to enable our members to learn how to essentially mimic what I'm doing. What I'm doing is a very teachable skill. It, and it is a, it's teachable. The reason we are succeeding is I was you know, basically a saleswoman for 15 years. So I understand how to present information so that people understand it. So I'm really using that 
ability that I have to teach all of our members how to do the exact same thing and empower people with um, good clinical research, good data, so that they can bring it to their reps. Because I think the biggest issue we have is the presentation of continuous misinformation in front of our reps. And if they see the proper information continuously, we will bring them back right into the middle. Because right now the pendulum has swung back to the other end. We're never had in the happy middle ground. We're either overdoing it or we're underdoing it. So we're trying to be that voice where, you know, unfortunately the chronic illness community isn't sexy. It's not something the news wants to talk about. Nobody likes sick people. Um, <laughs> so we're trying to put a different spin on that, that, you know, chronic illness is not something that needs to be hidden away. And it's, they say 50% of Americans have chronic illness, but it's never discussed. And this is something that we need to take out of the closet, just like addiction needed to be taken out of the closet. It needs to be discussed and it needs to be educated. And that's really what our focus is. It's getting our members educated on exactly what is right and what is wrong, and then having them go meet with their reps and have those discussions. And I think the state-level discussions are going to be the most effective as, you know, the states have the power to initiate their own laws. And the state representatives are a lot more like, really the point is that they're more like basic people, is that they are getting their news from the real from the TV, just like most people. And if we go in there and show them that other side and they, unlike Congress and Senate are not exempt from laws. So if they pass these laws, it is going to affect them and it is going to affect their family. Your approach right now is to educate existing lawmakers, right? Um, do you see a time where there could be a strong enough voting block where this could become an issue in the campaign? And if so, um, are you aware of any good candidates on this? I mean, is there any legislator, any legislators at this point that that really get it? Um, I think some of the legislators get it. It's a difference between getting it and doing something about it. Um, there is um, Congressman James McGovern is the one and only representative who has said that we can speak publicly about his position, and his position is to help protect people and to make sure that the access is still there. And is the only legislator that gave a voice to this outside of um, you know, Representative Mike Lee, which I just connected with this morning. And I think really we are going to make this an issue. I mean, a year ago, this wasn't discussed half as much. Now we've seen it constantly in the paper where pain patients can't get access. Well, the next step is why can't they get access? Tell the public why we're not getting access. And really what CIAG is doing is we are becoming that voice that was not there. This is a gutting of healthcare because they're sidestepping themselves over to the, um, the stimulant medications. And I know that as well, because in April, they discussed the very first stimulant crisis summit, which is going to be kicking off in November. So they're creating the same marketing discussion on another classification of drugs because it allows us to essentially we're handing over our rights because they're creating an intentional fear. And then we're saying, oh, yes, do something about it, do something about it. And then they take our rights from us. Well, it, it's actually funny how, like, to me, how, how perfectly liberal the policy that is harming patients is. It, the, the target is greedy capitalist Big Pharma, who has duped, like, these stupid, un, unenlightened doctors. So, so like, and the, and the outcomes, the met there are perfectly quantifiable and measurable like any good sort of liberal policy. It's let, 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 let's track the morphine milligram equivalents, 
the volume of the, of this and let's watch it go down and look yeah. we, we won and, and and that's like you know fully encapsulates like just the sort of technocratic liberal response to so many problems and we see it in this case just do tr- tremendous damage without the necessary context without nuance and if we're if the single measurement is the total volume of a of a chemical like we are totally missing and failing to measure any remotely human outcome exactly we've destroyed the doctor patient relationship and created fear among doctors to do what they are trained to do you know, the doctors are automatically thinking of themselves. They're being threatened with jail time. They're being threatened with license suspensions. They can't focus on you when they're too worried about that. And it's natural. One of the biggest dangers that I think nobody's discussed at all is the idea of putting pain patients on Suboxone. And that has been kicked around. And it's continuously being kicked around. And one of the mechanisms of Suboxone that most elected officials were probably not educated on and intentionally not educated on as we need to come to terms with suboxone is still big pharma it is not the angel of of addiction it is a pharmaceutical agent worth billions of dollars and there is an agenda behind suboxone as well i have seen discussions from their ceo talking about in 2014 predicting it was going to be used for pain so one of the major follies in that that nobody is thinking of is, aside from the obvious, is that it's not efficient, it's not FDA approved, and God knows what it would do with people with compromised disease systems because it was designed for healthy bodies that were addicted only. And what that mechanism does is it actually binds to the opioid receptors in your brain so that if you were to take an opiate such as you know heroin or you know oxycodone morphine you will be triggering an automatic acute withdrawal start violently getting sick or and you are unable to get the opiate to fully bind and provide pain relief the biggest thing with chronic illness patients is we often need emergency surgeries you have months of taper off of a suboxone. It is more difficult to come off of than a conventional opiate. Suboxone itself is an opiate. It's just a different concoction of the compound. And it has been made so that it, if you combine another opiate with it, you will get violently ill or it will not provide the pain relief needed. So this is a, a, a something that nobody's even brought up in any discussion. And it is a real clear and present danger for people with chronic illness and disease. And even they don't even realize it because some of these patients are going to likely be desperate and be willing to take anything. And and that's exactly why we shouldn't be just testing it. Like we're using the American public as like a clinical trial, but none of us signed up for one. Lauren, thank you so much for doing the arduous work that you're doing, which is providing a counter narrative to something that's really, really difficult to undo <laughs> to, to, to change people's minds about. And, yeah. and it's, it's a lot of work and it sounds like you're in it for the long haul. So thanks for coming on. Yeah, Lauren. No, thank you. I'm thank- really glad we were able to do this. Thank you so much. I, I, I don't think this is an exaggeration to say that this might be the most important conversation we've had on the show so far. I, I really appreciate the work you're doing, and it, it's probably really tough. 
Uh, hang in yeah. there, and thank you so much. Uh, where where can people find out more information about you or your movement? Oh, yeah, please. Um, you can actually visit us at ciaag.net, and we are also on Twitter and Instagram at ciaag official. We do actually have a sister network called World of Pain, where that's more of our, um, almost like our news network, where we're educating through videos and our community blog to help um, the community kind of deal with the situation and communicate with each other. All right, thank you. That was Lauren DeLuca, founder of the Chronic Illness Awareness and Advocacy Group. Narcotica is an independent production of Troy Farah, Zachary Siegel, and myself, Christopher Moraff. We can be found on Twitter at Narcocast, and we have a Patreon account, and that's patreon.com slash narcotica. You can also download us at iTunes and SoundCloud, or visit our webpage, www.narcocast.com. Thank you for listening, and thanks for the support.